0: a teacher, I had this um, a great privilege uh, of teaching with, with, with some really great teachers uh, and outstanding teachers. But one man sticks in my mind. Um, his man was he was called Derek Fry. He was he was about five foot tall, and uh, he was nearing his retirement as I taught with him uh, up at Leeds Grammar School. And um, he taught chemistry. He was very very eccentric, shall we say? I remember one week he completely lost his voice. Now, as a teacher, that's quite an important thing to have your voice. Um, and we told him, "Go home, there, Go and recover." He was a single man. Go and relax for a while. Don't talk to anyone. But he came to school every day, with extra notes prepared, and taught in silence, just pointing at things that he'd written on the board, and writing little notes to the children as they would teach at the board. His classes, we walked past the classroom thinking it would be utter chaos. It was pure silence. The boys loved his just British eccentricity. He was an absolute gem. And the the thing that they loved most about him, I think, was he hated sport and was vocal about his hatred of most sports. But he was always there on a Saturday morning and uh, always in his gowns, because we wore gowns as teachers cheering for the boys one day I remember very vividly he he came into the common room as we we described it and sat down next to me and uh, he he pointed to a report that he was writing for a boy that was in my form and it, it was the shortest report I've ever seen and it simply said your son is depriving a village of an idiot exclamation mark now, of course, uh, many teachers, you could be fired for a comment like that, and, and rightly so. But it was so respected by pupils, parents, and all of the teachers as well, that it, the comment was taken as, is, as it was intended. See, the boy was being a fool. An utter fool. And the comment was a warning. See, foolishness, it, it's to take on a power... It's to take on an authority that we are absolutely no match for. And this boy was, if you like, in my class, he thought he could slack off in his studies and, and remain in the school. And my friend, Mr Fry, he, in his own very delightful, eccentric way, lovingly warned this boy and his parents he couldn't win. He couldn't slack off in his studies and remain in the school. And if he were to do that, he would be out. Now, let's be clear, foolishness is not the same as sin. Sin, obviously, that rebellion against God, whether that's in our unrighteousness, just sort of, you know, living in a very chaotic way against God's rule, or just in our own self-righteousness, depending on ourselves. It's a turning, it's a rebellion against God but that's a moral failure foolishness is not that it's not the same as sin it can lead to sin but it's not the same see you can be foolish and yet the same morally neutral so for example my boys as most children do they like climbing up high walls and sort of balancing along you know seeing how they can do it's usually trying to hold on to my hand at the same time but you know, In so doing, they're not sinning by standing on a high wall. But they are being foolish. Because, and parents will tell them, I should tell them, you're being a fool, come down. You know, I'll try and bring them down. But they're being a fool because they cannot win against the concrete pavement. They, it's just, it's an utter loss. They, they will lose that battle, if you like. See, to be foolish is to take on a power, an authority... In which you you are no match for that authority or power. And to call someone a fool, to warn them as you would a child on a high wall, that is a loving kind of call, isn't it? It's an appropriate thing to do. And you can even sometimes laugh at someone's foolishness. I don't know, my boys actually quite like You've Been Framed. I don't particularly like the program myself. But the whole premise of that program is you you laugh at people who have underestimated a power or a force. Usually gravity or speed, you know, on a pair of skis or, you know, on a surfboard or wherever it may be. And they kind of, their foolishness leads them to usually getting hurt in some way. And they kind of get up and, oh, you know, it's all that kind of stuff. And, you know, you can laugh at that kind of foolishness. It's morally neutral in that sense. But being called a fool, its a little bit different, isn't it? If you've ever been bullied at work or at school, you will know the, the pain of that if you've been called a fool in those circumstances. And Jesus warns those who would call others a fool in, in one of his most famous sermons in Matthew 5, verse 22. We'll look at that in October. I mean, you can lovingly warn someone who's being a fool. You can even laugh at the fool if what they are doing is... Foolishly funny and not morally degrading in any sense. But what kind of fool is being described here in Psalm 53? What should our response be to this fool? Are you that fool? Are we all that fool? See what we see here in, psalm, in this psalm is sobering because God exposes this fool. I hope you saw that as it was read there. We, we see the heart of the fool. It just goes with the outline, follow with me, and you'll see where we're sort of heading. The, the, we see the heart of the fool. We see the results of his folly. The, and then the identity. Who is the fool? And their destiny. But thankfully we come to the end and we see the cure for the fool. Firstly, let's look at the heart of the fool. Verse one. Follow with me if you can. Just first half. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. I'm not sure if you remember that advertising campaign a few years ago, I think it was 2009, Richard Dawkins and the the other kind of new atheists, they paid for that, um, kind of those uh, those slogans to go on buses, didn't they? And it said this, there's probably no God, now stop worrying and enjoy your life. It got a lot of press. Uh, Richard Dawkins and the late Christopher Hitchens. (laughs) And through them, atheism, their brand of atheism has enjoyed massive publicity, hasn't it? publicity that's never ever known before. These guys, uh, I don't know if you know, they're an incredibly rare breed. They're a very noisy breed, has to be said. But Dawkins and those others, um, kind of new new atheists, they are are really philosophical or uh, uh, theoretical atheists. That is, they deny any kind of divine existence at all. Everything we know, see in the world around us is kind of reduced to a kind of reason and logic. And if it can't be explained away at that, it's not existent. Despite all the evidence of something greater and bigger um, than humanity in the world around us, despite the vast majority of the world's population believing that that to be the case and that there is something other beyond this life and themselves, despite all this, that very very, very, very rare breed, of a kind of philosophical, theoretical atheist, that they shout loud. But interestingly, that is not the kind of people that have been described here in Psalm 53, those who we know as atheists. The the, the fool here is not that sort of atheist. They're rare now, and actually those, those kind of Dawkins, Hitchens, and those type of people, they didn't even really exist until the 16th century, at all. So bizarre is their faith, if you like. But we see here, the fool says in his heart that there's no God. Yes, that is what Dawkins and Hitchens knows. That is what they're saying. But look what it's saying here. It's saying, it's in his heart. You see, the fool of verse 1 could very easily be in a church, week in, week out. He might claim to know God. And to believe and trust in God, but in his heart, there's no recognition of God and who he is. Oh, he may not be that, that kind of theoretical atheist, living out that kind of evidence-less-less, evidence-less faith in himself, as you know, there we're the pinnacle of the universe. But to fall here, he's what you might describe as a practical atheist. This fool thinks they've got God controlled in a kind of out of sight, out of mind kind of way. Such a fool looks at God in a very simplistic and quite an uninformed way and thinks, well, God doesn't do anything. You know, he doesn't reward the good or or kind of punish evil. Just look at what's going on in Syria at the moment. We just heard Jenny pray. God's not doing anything about that. God can't be anywhere, so out of sight, out of mind. Let's just keep him at arm's length. And that is a very, very... attractive option, isn't it? The practical atheist. Because God becomes very easy to ignore when you think like that. You bring God out when it suits you. Perhaps in the opening ceremony of Olympics, for example. Did you see that? I only watched it on iPlayer after I got back from church last week. Hence why I made no comment about it last week. But did you see? We had, what did it begin with? Jerusalem. A song all about, I mean it's all green pastures and pleasant lands and all that kind of stuff. But it's all about making the gospel known in this country. And then we went on to guide me, O oh, thou great Jehovah. Pilgrims through this barren land. I am weak, but thou art mighty. Hold me with thy power. Bread of heaven, bread of heaven. Jesus, Jesus, feed me now and evermore. And we went to God is our strength and refuge. And then, amazingly, I couldn't believe this. We went to a well. We we, they did the national anthem as we're doing eighteen times now over the last week. It's getting exciting with all the gold medals. But they finished with what? Abide with me. And did you notice how? Not like at the FA Cup final where you just get two verses and everyone's sort of half drunk anyway and they don't really know what they're singing. But all six verses. All six verses. The song of the trenches, the song of D-Day after they, an hour, sorry, a day after they kind of got through and broken the German lines, they sang it and you could hear it 70 miles along the Normandy coast. This is what they sang. Verse 6, and they sang this at the Olympic ceremony. Hold thou thy cross before my closing eyes. Shine through the gloom and point me to the skies. Heaven morning breaks. The earth's vain shadows flee. In life, in death, O Lord, abide with me. 28 million people in this country heard those words last Saturday, Friday. One billion people around the world heard those words. But like this man in this psalm, I guess many people who hear that will take the gamble. You see, that is what this man is doing. He's... He's, t- he's taking a moral gamble with his life. In his heart he's saying, there is no God. And if there is, he's going to do nothing. He gambles with his life in that he thinks that his life will not be held to account. There'll be no reckoning. There'll be no judgment. God is reduced to this kind of just benevolent and benign being. Oh, he's nice. He won't do anything. So this fool thinking that he can get away with it, will in his mind, he'll he'll just sort of stop worrying, as Dawkins put, and enjoy life his way, not God's way. So he can look around and he say, yeah, I'll I'll lustfully think about that woman there. I, I won't think about the consequences to my own marriage now or marriage in the future. I'll just do as I want, thank you very much. Because there are no consequences before God in his mind. In his heart there is no God. And he'll think about all sorts of things, what he does, his motives, his desires, about money, about his work, about his relationships, about everything. It just doesn't matter. As long as he appears morally upright in front of those around him, in a kind of a relative way. This fool lives under the assumption that there is no God. That is the heart of the fool. Let's go secondly. What, what, what are the results? What are the results of his folly? Uh, look with me in the second half of verse 1. There are three points I want to make here. Firstly, uh, look at the second half of verse 1. They are corrupt. That is the effects of the folly and the fool, uh, in the fool himself are Devastating. That secret assumption that he's living with—that there is no God—is not a morally neutral thing. It eats away at the character of the person. They're corrupt. Uh, if we are fooled by the by our natures, whatever the outside pretense we put on for others, that little veneer that you know we kind of polish up on a daily basis, this exposes the reality: we are rotten inside. And I guess we know that. That's the effect of the fool. effect to the fool uh, on himself. But look at how God views the fool. Uh, it's, it's pretty shocking that their ways are vile. Folly destroys our relationship with God. It leaves huge gaps in our lives. Now once again, many people try and suppress that feeling of emptiness and they try to do that and we look around with all sorts of stuff and possessions of careers and experiences. But the gap is still there. The consequence of the folly, of living with that secret assumption that there is no God. It means that you've become vile to the one who has loved you and made you in his image. So folly hurts us. But it also hurts God. God. But lastly, it also hurts others. Look at verse four with me if you can. will the evildoers never learn? Those who devour my people as men eat bread um, and who do not call on God. I don't know if you, did you have bread for lunch? We had bread for lunch. I mean, did you actually think about the pain you were causing to that bread as you bit into it? I mean, did you actually think of the consequences of hurting that bread this lunchtime? I mean, you, you ought to have done. No, of course not see, the fool not only hurts themselves, hurts God, but they also hurt others. They devour and care little of the consequences of what they're doing. And do you see that? The culture in your workplace, maybe? Maybe in your sporting club? Do you see that around you? Have you experienced that in a relationship or a friendship? They devour you. They use you. They maybe even abuse you. As men eat Bread. Does this happen? Well, we've just been praying about it. I mean, look, at, look around the world. Look at Syria right now. Is that not a great example of what's going on? Look at the, the last hundred years of the history of our world. And all the bloodshed. But most importantly, just look in your heart. Look at your life. No care for the person, no care for the consequences. The fool not only hurts themselves, they hurt God, and they also hurt others. But who is this fool? Let's go thirdly to the identity of the fool. We're going down to verse 2 and 3 here now. Now the writer probably has got a certain group in mind, as they would have done um, when he's thinking about writing uh, this psalm here. It could have been aimed at those mentioned in verse 5, the enemies of God's people. Likewise, it could have been the leaders of God's people, because This psalm is actually mirrored in Psalm 14. They're very, very similar. And there it's explicitly mentioned uh, the enemies were the leaders of God's people, God's people of Israel there. So the writer is looking round. And you look at it at the end of verse 1. And it seems like he feels he's in a desperate situation. No one's doing good, he says. Now that could be viewed if it was a singular person as an exaggeration of the circumstances around him. There's a few bad eggs, a few bad chaps around him. And he's saying, oh, this is terrible because my circumstances locally seem bad. It's distorting his view, but that's not the viewpoint of verse two and three, is it? He's surrounded maybe by folly, but now look what the camera does. It pans back. I don't know if you've been watching Olympics. I've been a little bit obsessed over the last few days. Um, and uh, it's just been... Uh, amazing. I think what the BBC doing uh, is a really great job. And the last night was exciting, wasn't it? We got those three gold medals, got Jessica Rennes got Mo Farah, and the ginger bloke who won the uh, long jump. We can't remember his name at all, but he, great, good on him. Um, and there he was. All the focus is on these three people doing amazingly well. And then Jessica Rennes, she gets a, a medal and you focus on her face and then it pans out and you see gold, silver and bronze. And then you see... Lord Coe and and, and a few others, and then you see the crowd, and then I just love the way that they just kept on panning the camera back. And then you saw 70,000 people. I mean, the noise, it was incredible, wasn't it? And you're excited, and it's brilliant. And then they have that lovely camera. I don't know if it's on a helicopter or an airship or something. But there it is, right above the stadium, looking down on this cauldron of celebration and noise. And it's amazing. And Gary Lineker was commentating at the time. And it was just, you know, what a spectacle. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. And then it came out even further. And you saw East London. What was 60 years ago obliterated by the blitzkrieg of, the, of World War II is now redeveloped and, and he made a comment about that and then it came out and you saw Canary Wharf and you saw St Paul's Cathedral and you just thought, wow, the bigger view. And, and the comment was something, there's more going on here than the three individuals in that stadium. You just need to see the bigger perspective. And is this psalmist exaggerating? Well, the point of verse two and three is you need the bigger view. Which is what you get here. God looks down from heaven and and he sees all of humanity. Is there anyone who will understand? And notice what he's looking for here. He's not looking for perfection. He's looking for wisdom, which is the opposite of folly. He's looking for someone, just one person in his view, his big panoramic view, Who says in their heart. There is a God. Just one person. Who takes initiative to seek him. He looks down at every single person. Every single person now. But every single person that has existed. In the whole of time. Every single person. In every location in the world. Anyone who seeks God. Oh, We probably would like to put forward a few people. Wouldn't we? Here's my grandma. She was a great lady. Um, Here's, uh, you know, uh, you know a, a really generous person who's given loads and loads of money to charity. There you go, God. There's someone who seeks you. There's someone who's going to look for you. There's someone who understands. What about an upstanding British gentleman? Aren't they just the, the obvious? maybe even an Olympic gold medal winner? Verse first three is pretty shocking, though, isn't it? Everyone has turned away. They have come together. They have together become corrupt, sorry. We're all corrupt. That word theres it's a, it's a pretty ugly term in the original. And it's used to describe sour milk. You know what that smells and tastes like. It's vile and it's disgusting. That's what they are to God. In a relative sense, there are those, of course, who are more wise. There are those who are more foolish. And we kind of look around and see, in, in, in relative terms here... But in absolute sense, look at the end of verse 3. There's no one that does good in the eyes of God. Not even one. And see, the camera's pan back. Everything is in view. In our lives, everything. You see, in God's sight, things look different, don't they? Your deepest thoughts are exposed. Your, your motives, your longings. Although the theoretical atheist is incredibly rare, they're noisy, aren't they? But they're rare. What about the practical atheist that's being described here? Well, they're very common indeed. You just need to look in the mirror. The psalmist includes himself, every person of faith, every single person that's ever lived. Even the Apostle Paul, which we know very well, you know Romans chapter three, verse ten following. You know he even picks up on these on these uh, verses here. And it's not an us and them in this situation at all. All have turned away. <coughs> Who's the fool? It's me, and it's you. All of us by nature are fools. There is no Amazonian rainforest tribe, I get that question all the time, who has ever sought God, looked after God, you know, understood God in any sense. There is no period in history, the golden era of the Victorian Christian, Christian age. No! All have turned away. Scholars sometimes refer to this as the, the decisive whisper of the human heart. There is no God. Not really. Not of any consequence. People describe that whisper as the determining signature of the human existence. That is, it's perennial of all time and it's universal of everywhere. It's what we are by nature. Whatever understanding or longing we have for God, it's only because we've been made in his image. But we suppress and we distort at What we know of God from his creation and we do not seek him. The camera, if you like, has panned back. The judgment is not relative. You don't, you don't just look at each other and say, I'm all right comparing to them. No, the camera's right back here and it can see everything. The whole of our lives. It's absolute. The identity of the fool by nature is you and me. It is everyone. Now, historically, these doctrines have been known as total depravity or original sin. They are objectionable to many in our culture, and maybe to you. And you may even point to characters in the Bible and say, well, you know, there were people who looked after God who looked toward God, who understood God, and so on, who saw God. But again and again, from this passage and from everywhere else in the Bible, yes, there are those people, but look at what comes first. Anyone who is seeking God Is only doing so because God has sought them first. The the initiative is God's. He has first loved you and given His Spirit to work in you. The initiative is a gift of grace, therefore, all glory goes to Him. But by nature, by nature, we are all fools. Just look in the mirror. Fourthly, uh, and quickly, uh, what's the destiny of the fool? Verse four and five. Where does folly lead, if you like? What happens to us if our foolishness is not cured? Remember, foolishness is to take on that power, that authority of which we have no ability to win, no chance whatsoever. Now, saying in our hearts, there is no God, and if living that way meant that we could destroy God, meant that we had the possibility to win, that would, that would be fine. It would be wicked, But it wouldn't be foolish. It would be logical, wouldn't it? Because you could win. But we are fools to think that we can take on God. We cannot win. The psalmist wants his listeners to know in verse 4, will they never learn, he says. You cannot take God on. And here, specifically, you can't take God's people on and think that everything is going to be overlooked by God. There's no reckoning, no judgment. It's like they're, they're perched along a high wall and he's warning them, saying, you're being foolish. Get down. But the sobering destiny for the fool comes in verse five. There, I mean, I'm not going to spend too much time on it, but notice that all of the tenses are perfect. By that, is, they, they look like future tenses and that's the way they're translated here because we don't have that tense in, our, in our, our language. But perfect tense is basically a kind of it, it, it's a kind of a done deal. It, it's looking forward, but it's sorted. It's sorted because God is sovereign. He's the one who sorted it. It's an absolute certainty. There, um, there they were, overwhelmed with dread, where there was nothing to dread. God scattered the bones of those who attacked you. You put them to shame, for God despised them. They weren't frightened by God. In the, in the heartless of God at all. And now they are. But is that the end? No, God loves us. And this psalm is, if you like, to go back to the opening illustration, it's like a report card from my dear friend. Someone is thinking they can take on authority without any consequence, and God calls us fools now so he doesn't have to do so finally. So lastly, the cure for the fool, verse six. It's a prayer, and it's a prayer for rescue. The psalmist is, is pleading with, with um, God, isn't he, to send a rescuer from Zion. That is Jerusalem. And when he does, there will be rejoicing and all of God's people will be glad. You see that there. I'm going to scoot through this, but you, I think you know the answer already. There's one cure. It came in Jerusalem to the whole world. And it came in one person. And the clues are throughout the psalm. Have you picked them up? The judgment of verse 3, you see, that, that de- declaration that there's, there's no one is good, that's not true anymore. It's true for all of humanity except one. Because there was one who did seek God and did so perfectly. There's one time in history, one man in history, and God looked down. And, and he, if you like, the camera panned out in the whole of his life. And he didn't judge him relatively, he judged him absolutely. And what did God say of this man? He said, well done. With you I am well pleased. See that one, who, which God declared, this is my son. He's the rescuer. He's the cure. Did you also notice, second clue, verse 6, the word salvation there. I mean, in the Hebrew it's Yeshua. And that I, not that I know Hebrew at all, so I have to read this up. But Yeshua, which is translated, the name Joshua, which translated in the Greek is... Jesus, as the angel declared at his birth, he will be the one who will save people from their sins. Jesus, he's the rescuer, he's the cure. And I guess this Psalm, what it does is, it it helps us face the reality of who we are, doesn't it? We are by nature fools, it destroys us, it makes us vile before God and it hurts our relationships. And verse uh, five, it leads to final rejection before God. That's the reality, the stakes are high. But, verse six, as a rescuer who's come out of Zion. There's a cure. Trusting in Jesus as the rescuer, having his life counted as yours is the only option we have. That is what he offers as he died on the cross, taking our folly on himself and placing his wisdom on us by faith. The foolishness will always be in our heart. But if you've trusted in Christ and you've let his spirit come into you, it will now go, (coughs) well, it will now never not be unchallenged. It will always be challenged by the spirit in us. And one day that folly will finally be conquered. God can look down and all those perfect tenses of verse five, you know, putting you to shame, despising your folly, he can do that or he can look down and with all the, The the absolute certainty of those perfect tenses in verse 5, he can look down and he can see the wisdom and perfect life of the Lord Jesus Christ in us. I guess the challenge to Christians, uh, many of us are here today, we are, is that we know that there will be foolishness in our lives, won't won't there be? Today, tomorrow and in the future. But we, we must remember that God doesn't just judge us relatively, he judges us absolutely. And he, needs, he will look down on us the whole of our lives, knowing every thought, action, deed and motive. And we must not forget what it cost him to finally wipe out our foolishness when the Saviour returns. And, and when we live honouring that cost, that cure, that is when the world begins to listen, isn't it? See something different in us, a fullness of joy, of contentment, of security. And then maybe just they maybe just stop to think at that point is there a God? Maybe they will stop being foolish for a moment and consider. Let me finish. According to the Times newspaper, before the opening ceremony of the Olympics, Danny Boyle, who did a great job, didn't he, in directing that whole crazy, eccentric British opening ceremony. This is what he said. It's intriguing, isn't it? This is. He says, I don't believe in God, but I believe in the people who do. This is their show. They really are the best of us. we are only anything before God because of what Christ has done in us first he took the initiative God sent his son Jesus our salvation verse 6 there and we need to humbly trust in him and in him alone and hear the warning of this psalm because maybe we need to stop being a fool before we know the the eternal reality of the fool so let's pray Going to read one more verse of Abide with Me, which you may not know. I need Thy presence every passing hour. What but Thy grace can foil the tempter's power? Who, like Thyself, my guide and stay can be through cloud and sunshine? Lord, abide with Me. Heavenly Father, if we're here today and we've trusted in Your Son, the Lord Jesus, but there are elements of our lives where we are still utterly foolish. Please forgive us and help us to not listen to the tempter's power, but be guided and stayed by the Lord Jesus through his word and by his spirit. Abide with us, we pray, help us. And for perhaps one or two of us here um, who are doing exactly as the psalm warns. Help us to not be foolish, but to heed the warning. Such that we can avoid the result um, and the destiny of the fool here in this psalm. And know the salvation and the joy and the celebration and, and all of the contentment that Jesus can only bring. We ask this for his glory. Amen.